To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the business of sports. Let's talk Super Bowl and Fox Sports. Guaranteed money isn't necessarily guaranteed. One major league soccer owner is leading a $50 million investment. The blurring of the lines between sports team owners and the sports gambling space. Michael Barr. How high can these valuations go? Evan Novi williams Off the field, the NBA has never been buzzier. And the leaders in the sports industry. Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred. Heidi O'Neill is president of direct-to-consumer at Nike. Then the race car driver, Elio Castroneves. Jared Smith, president of Ticketmaster. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Evan Novi Williams. And I'm Michael Barr, and this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. And we have our special guest, and we are so happy that he returned from Monday's show. We didn't scare him off, Mike Lynch. He has been a legend, been doing this for decades in sports. We didn't mention, by the way, yet, we, know, we know you did it in Boston where you had your career. But uh, you did a lot of it at uh, WCVB in Boston, correct? Yeah, absolutely all of it uh, from 1982 until last uh, September. And actually, I'm still there on a part-time basis. So still in Boston. haven't left. It's nice to have that hometown uh, that uh, you can always call home. And Boston has been a very nice town. I I had a chance to visit one time. uh, Loved it. And uh, I've always said i got to go back more often. So I am so glad that you're here, Mike. And we're going to talk about some of the topics that uh, are running around for the week. And let's start with the UFC. (laughs) And I know we talked about this Monday. But let's go a little deeper now. We have more details, Evan. What's going on? Yeah, so, you know, we discussed earlier in the week, UFC seems adamant that their April 18th event is going to happen. We now know where it's going to happen or where where they're planning to hold it. uh, And that is the Tachi Palace Casino Resort. Uh, Again, it's on tribal land in California. I believe it's about 30, 40 miles south of Fresno. Uh, Again, you know, that's intentional. This is kind of an end around around uh, some regulation. Also, there are some, you know, some some combat sports bodies that don't think that this should be happening. The Association of Ringside Physicians. But again, guys, as we talked about, and and Mike, I want to get your thoughts here as well. You know, this is an attempt because UFC, like a lot of other sports bodies, needs to make the money their owners endeavor you know, William Morris, IMG, they need the money, and this is the way that they're hoping to do it. Well, obviously, they've circumvented the uh, no gatherings of more than 10 people by being on, on tribal land. I know one of the options was uh, some kind of fantasy island uh, where they sort of could be. Uh, <laughs> that's the only word I could come up with for the only phrase I came up with was fantasy island. That was one of the options that they were uh, as, as recently as last night. Um, but th- this, I, I just don't see how anybody with any common sense can think that this is a, a good idea, a safe idea, or a healthy idea. But uh, anybody that knows Dana White knows that he, he gets his way more often than he uh, gets denied uh, his, uh, his wishes. 
Absolutely. And and there's, I mean, we should talk about kind of the ownership structure here for yeah. folks who don't remember. Back in 2016, uh, Endeavor, IMG, William Morris bought UFC $4 billion. And when they did that, they took on a pretty significant amount of debt to kind of make the transaction happen. And as a result, you know, there's, there's quarterly debt service on that. And, you know, it's a little bit different from, you know, leagues like the NBA and NFL, which are, you know, certainly losing out on you know, big revenue money, TV money, et cetera, if, uh, if games don't happen. The UFC, when it is humming along, spins off a lot of cash, which helps pay off that debt. When the UFC is not humming along, uh, obviously it becomes a little bit harder to pay off the debt service. Uh, and, you know, for, for William Morris, you know, Endeavor, you know, a company that, you know, represents a lot of people, their talent agency, you know, is a big part of their business. They also have a lot of, you know, media ticketing, you know, live event business as well. That's obviously hurting as well. Anything that they can do in their portfolio right now to get things up and running is potentially critical for them holding on to some of these assets. So I think that the, the debt piece is probably the biggest portion that and the fact that, you know, UFC has ESPN contracts that they'd love to get some money flowing through. Uh, I think that's probably the biggest portion of what we're seeing here. How do you feel about ESPN jumping in on this and, and uh, being being part of this this pay-per-view uh, their, their social uh, responsibility and obligations in this. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I mean, certainly, you know, ESPN, <laughs> like everybody else in this world, as we've talked about, is dying for content. You know, uh, they, they really need something to hold, to, to fill the void that, that, that live sports has left for them. Um, and again, you know, I think you're right. And, and, and who knows if, if ESPN has maybe some, some qualms, some concerns about, you know, maybe the way this is, is happening. I think one thing I will say about, you know, if you think about UFC, certainly less so than other sports has the ability to do things on a very, very small personnel budget, right? I mean, there's a chance that these fights are going to have two fighters, you know, two trainers, a referee, and maybe two or three people, you know, holding cameras. There's a way to do this in a very, in a very small social interactive manner. And I think that is, uh, that is something that, that they will lean on pretty significantly. Let's move on to the next topic. And uh, this is more about the Diamondbacks, and there is an ownership lawsuit. Apparently, the minority owners are filing a lawsuit uh, against the majority owners here. What is going on with that, Evan? Yeah, it's funny, Michael. We, it's kind of nice to talk about a topic that is not directly coronavirus related uh, for a second. And this one's super interesting. And who are, for folks who are interested, I would recommend, you know, they read Mike McCann's piece in SI because, you know, we are not law experts, unfortunately. But uh, it sounds as though, you know, there's a fight going on with the ownership group of the Arizona Diamondbacks right now where the, the man who controls uh, the, the, the principal owner, uh, Ken Kendrick, has apparently, you know, trying to get minority owners who buy, you know, let's say a half a percent of the team, a quarter of a percent of the team, trying to get them to either buy their way up to one percent of the team or to get them to accept a buyout of their uh, of, of their stakes. Uh, and we've talked a lot on this show about, you know, the way that minority stakes operate, you know, who wants them, why they want them, kind of the social cachet that goes along with it. Uh, and I think this is a very interesting question. And I do wonder, and uh, Michael, give me your thoughts here, if you think that this might be something that is going to happen kind of around the sports world. If, if there may be more fighting right now between the, the billionaires, the guys who own the big pieces of these teams – 
and the smaller, probably local. One of these guys is a jeweler, I believe. You know, local businessmen who you know are maybe big fans of the team who who put in a, a lot of money for them to buy a very small chunk of a team and then end up you know in this fight with the principal owner about whether they can even stay on as a as a half a percent owner. Well, when. When people buy clubs, they're very interested in limited partners because they're trying to raise enough cash to buy the team. So they are buddy-buddies with all those people, and it's amazing how after years, all of a sudden, they ask them to ante up or pony up to get up to the 1% level uh, and all of a sudden don't need them anymore. Uh, We had an incident here in Boston in 1982. Buddy LaRue used to be a trainer for the Boston Celtics and for the Boston Red Sox. He somehow became a limited partner with the Red Sox. And it was a June night where they were honoring Tony Canigliaro at Fenway Park. And it's known in these parts as the LaRue Coup. He was a limited partner, and he held a press conference while Tony C. was being honored on the field, announcing that he, as one of the limited partners, was now taking over management of the Boston Red Sox. And this thing wound up being in court for about three years. Hmm. And it was it was a mess. And the players had no idea who was in charge every day, who was making the decisions, who was going to make the decisions on trades, on free agent signings, and hiring and firing managers and personnel, etc. So um, uh, this, 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 if, if, the, if the Diamondbacks go down this path, um, they're fortunate right now that they're not on the field. If they were on the field, it would be inescapable to have this not affect the play of the of, 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 of the players on the field because they'd be wondering what the heck was going on every single day. Michael, how would you feel if you you know were a big fan of let's say the Diamondbacks? You you know you invested three million dollars in a number of years ago for a half a percent, and then suddenly you know flash forward you know a, a decade plus, and now there's a letter sitting on your desk from the majority owner saying, hey, either you're going to pony up another three point six million to get yourself to to one percent. Or uh, we're going to buy you out, and you have no choice but to uh, to sell to us. How would that make you feel? Oh, I'd be as mad as Walter Brennan stung <laughs> by a bee. I mean, it's like, wait a minute, you can't. You know, you agree to something, and then you know later on, I I, I don't know where we got into this mindset. It's like, well, okay, we're going to change it, uh, and you do this. I, I don't understand that, and, and and I don't blame him for being mad. It does sound like the argument coming from, you know, the majority ownership of the Diamondbacks is that having a large number of people that own less than 1% kind of undermines the financial stability of a team. I mean, don't forget that, you know, when things are going poorly for a team like this, the, you know, the the losses or the extra money that has to get ponied up, you know, is supposed to be shared evenly across uh, across all the ownership. So I, I think the, this, this lawsuit may hinge on, on kind of that idea. But, you know, as we've talked about on the show a lot, you know, all these leagues are in some ways, and this runs counter to this lawsuit, kind of struggling about the idea of minority owners. You know, these teams are skyrocketing in value so quickly, and the amount of people that can even afford, you know, 1% of a Major League Baseball team now is getting smaller and smaller. You know, so there's talk of, within Major League Baseball, you know, investment vehicles where you can invest across a number of different teams. You know, I would imagine that ownership structure is a little bit easier to handle if you're a majority owner, just because that's a kind of a, a bigger, deeper-pocketed group versus maybe a single, a single human. Um, but, you know, I do think, you know, there, there, there's so much interesting happening right now at the, at the little minority 1%, 2% ownership of, of, of Major League Baseball and, you know, all major, major league clubs. 
By the way, I know there are a lot of people right now who I just made an old school reference, and someone is saying, Daddy, who's Walter Brennan? Just trust me. He's an actor, and, you know, he, he used to get mad, and he's dead, damn it. That's what I'm getting at. So and that's. You know, I went to, Michael, I went to the same high school as Walter Brennan, Swampscott High School in Swampscott, Mass. Really? And I remember, yep, he used to come to our Thanksgiving Day games when I was a kid, and that was a big deal because there was Amos McCoy, you know, from uh, <laughs> Walter Brennan, who was in the Lou Gehrig story, by the way, played right. a big uh, big role in the Lou Gehrig story. But, yeah, we went to the, it's the same high school, so that's one of our claims to fame up here. See, that's cool. Uh, man, <laughs> the real McCoy. I love that show. Anyway. <laughs> Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, let's talk about the last topic. This is, uh, and this one is a bit bizarre. Uh, FanDuel, I guess. What do you do when you don't have any sports that you can make any bets? So what they did, uh, West Virginia, they put the odds up on the presidential election. And then uh, the state lottery said, hey, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. Take that down for a second. We got some more questions about this. Now, listen, I, I'm I'm a heathen just like everybody else at the casino. I want to make a bet. But am I going to make a bet on the presidential election? Uh, and, and I'm, I don't know if I'm that desperate or not. This thing consumed my Tuesday night and was a very, very bizarre sequence. And, and you, you explained it fairly well there, Michael. The FanDuel, you know, very briefly on Tuesday night, Put up briefly, put up odds on the national presidential election for this year, um, and, and they had said that they had, you know, were asking the West Virginia State Lottery, which runs, you know, gambling in West Virginia, that they had gotten approval to do it, and they kind of rushed the lines up, and then, you know, flash forward maybe 40 minutes, suddenly the lines come back down, and then the West Virginia Lottery says, you know, we did approve this, but. We're asking operators to hold off while we while we answer a few more questions. So, you know, a very kind of bizarre couple hours. It seems as though it was approved briefly, but nobody understood that FanDuel was going to move so quickly. So once they did, you know, the, the, the state lottery decided to pull things back. You know, all that to say that your, your original point is right in that as, you know, sports stay dark and sports betting companies like FanDuel, like DraftKings, you know, MGM, as they look at their balance sheet right now and see very little coming in, they are looking to push the boundaries right now of what is what we can have people bet on. And entertainment is one of those areas. They're asking state regulators around this around the country, hey, can we do, you know, betting on, you know, let's say, you know, a, a, a reality TV show, for example. And then the other one is politics. Michael, I know you're a, a better 
is betting on politics, does that appeal to you? Is that something that you could see maybe occupying no. your time at a time when you can't <laughs> no. bet on NASCAR not, or the NFL? No, no. Very not easy, at all. Very easy answer. <laughs> it's, it is extremely an easy answer. It's like the thing about sports is that, you know, you can, yes, yeah, you can do your homework also when politics is that, whatever. But I'm sorry, that's the real deal. You know, that's, that has serious tones to it. When I'm talking about sports, and I'm talking about well, a football game, you know, it's it's a game. It, it, we can get down to it, and you know, and throw in all the cliches, and you know, it's like we left 110 percent out on the field. The bottom line is, it's a game, so I don't have a problem with that. And Mike, I, I wonder your thoughts about that. Would, would you bet on politics? I don't think I would, and I, I think the key word here is, is the public interest um, that, you know, where, where does, if, if we put it this way, Nevada uh, decided not to do it back in, I think, 2012 or 2013, and anything goes in Nevada. So if vetting pres- on presidential or any election in Nevada uh, was, was voted down, I mean, how can it work in any other state? Um, I, I worry about things like, you know, intimidation of, of, of the elderly. I mean, someone's got 100,000 riding on the election, and you say, you know, they start making phone calls. Hey, you better bet for, uh, you know, candidate uh, Michael. You better bet, better vote for candidate Evan. And I just think uh, the public interest is, is, is a good escape to, to not, not have this, uh, this happen. Uh, I, I don't think it has, I, I don't think it serves the public interest at all. Yeah, the thing I wonder, and again, it's it's essentially the same conversation we had at the top of the show about, you know, about UFC kind of soldiering on with it is that, you know, as operators look and see that they have very little money coming in, and again, as states as well, think about the tax revenue that they were banking on from a vibrant sports betting, you know, marketplace within their within their state. If they If both those entities are looking at, oh man, this revenue is not coming in right now. There may be some added pressure to think about both of them, you know, both the regulator on the state side and the operator on the uh, on the taking bet side, to think, you know, okay, what can maybe we expand, you know, maybe we expand a little bit the idea of what of what people can be betting on just to get, you know, a little bit of of, of money flowing. And I think you're right, Michael. I think that the concern and, and the reason why it certainly looks like what West Virginia did approve at least temporarily on Tuesday night was just. The national election, because my guess is that they felt like that one is a little bit harder to kind of manipulate, obviously, for from a scale standpoint versus like yep. you're not going to be able to bet on a, a judge getting reelected in a, a small county in, in West Virginia, for example. And by the way, is like Evan and you guys hit the nail on the head. It's like it, it, it's one thing if we have a national uh, election. Uh, but when you start getting down to these local elections and you start getting into who's going to make the city council, uh, life is too important to, to have some intimidation factor going like that. And that can easily happen. I could see that. So You're right, Michael. And here's another thing that I learned on Tuesday night, which kind of shocked me. Um, some you know people in the sports betting world think that gambling on the election could be bigger than gambling on the Super Bowl. That just the sheer amount of volume that people, you know, the interest in the U.S., certainly from a media coverage standpoint in the election and the length of time that the election takes in this country just means a longer horizon for people to gamble if they want to on the election. But that in sheer handle, you know, you could be looking at a Super Bowl sized event. So, you know, again, going back to the money real quick, if you think about why. FanDuel might want to offer these, why a state like West Virginia might want to approve it and regulate it. Uh, you're talking about adding potentially the biggest event of the calendar 
onto your books from a betting standpoint. And that is obviously a, uh, an attractive proposition for, for both sides. And you look at the, the possibilities of endless, you could have over-unders on um, percentage of the vote that uh, each uh, you know, nominee gets. Um, you know, like like in like in boxing, it's going to go one round, two rounds. Sure. It's going to be a knockout, a TKO, etc. And you could just the possibilities are, are endless. And I I think there'd be a lot of people very curious about it. But I just I just don't think it serves the public interest. We'll we'll see what you know what actually happens here if West Virginia eventually figures out that it has you know done enough research and understands it enough to reapprove it, or if this was a very minor blip that you know we'll all be laughing about in a couple of years and say hey. Remember when West Virginia very briefly allowed uh, betting on uh, on politics? So, you know, the next couple of months, I think we'll, we'll get a good sense of whether this is the future or whether this was just an aberration. By the way, Mike, I didn't get a chance to say this. And first of all, I wanted to mention in the podcast that you have your weekly podcast of your own, Loby, Lynchy and Friends with Hank Morse. And I uh, wanted to, people to know to check that podcast out because it's a lot of fun. Mike Lynch, you've been so kind to talk with us. Thank you, sir. It's, uh, we appreciate Thank you, your Michael. time. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Evan. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. Thank, Thank you, Mike. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. I'm Michael Barr, along with Evan Novi williams and special guest host, Mike Lynch. We're here each and every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday talking to the biggest names in sports business. You are listening to the Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio, around the world, and online, wherever you get your podcasts. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.